Welcome to Rising Fridays. We're here with a newish logo, newish show. I think the Friday here is to confuse people as though they're watching it on YouTube on like a Sunday or Monday. Just just to create that little tingling, like what is going on here? It's a time warp. It yeah. is a time warp. We've it's been always Friday. Meticulously yes. studying old clips of Kathy Lee Gifford and Hoda Kotb. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan is obviously Kathy Lee. Absolutely. I'm Hoda. We were going to have the white wine, but uh, we went with the coffee instead at the last minute. You know, people were like, "You guys, you can't do that." Maybe next Friday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting idea. You never know what's in the mugs. And speaking of white wine, on Sunday, French voters go to the polls in a race between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, with the far-right Le Pen within striking distance of an upset. So Tom Graham, an expert in deepfake technology, will join us to discuss the first use of deepfakes in the Ukraine-Russia war with propaganda deepfakes of both Zelensky and Putin. We're going to discuss that after we discuss the French election. Also on Sunday, Stephen Donziger will be released from house arrest. Donziger is the attorney who won a $9 billion judgment from Chevron and has been, and has been hounded by the company ever since. He'll join us to talk about the latest in his case. And then David Sirota will be with us to talk about his new essay on how Democrats are creating a joker moment for the country. And finally, Bernie Sanders, former campaign manager, is floating the possibility that Sanders will run in 2024 in a new behind-the-scenes book by Ari Rabenhoff, uh, kind of takes you inside the last five years of Bernie Sanders. He was, nobody, nobody spent more time with Bernie Sanders than, than Ari o over this last half decade. He'll join us later. Uh, but first, Kevin McCarthy. We've got big breaking news actually this morning for the first Rising Friday. Um, you know, late last night on Rachel Maddow's show, audio of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy in this new book, um, This Will Not Pass, by Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. They reported that McCarthy had said he was planning to ask Trump to step down after January 6th. McCarthy firmly denied that reporting. He said it was, quote, totally false. But now we have audio because the authors of the book took it to Rachel Maddow last night and played it live on the air. Liz, you on the phone? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I guess there's a question. When, when we were talking about the 25th Amendment resolution, um, yeah. and you asked if, if, you know, what happens if it gets there after he's gone, is, is there any chance, are you hearing that he might resign? Is there any reason to think that might happen? I've had a few discussions. My gut tells me no. Um, I'm seriously thinking of having that conversation with him tonight. I haven't talked to him in a couple of days. Um, from what I know of him, I mean, you guys all know him too. Do you think he'd ever back away? But what what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to call him. My This, this is what I think. Um, no, it'll pass the House. I think there's a chance it'll pass the Senate even when he's gone. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ramifications for that. Now, I haven't had a discussion with the Dems that if he did design, would it not happen? Now, this is one personal fear I have. Um, I do not want to get into any conversations about Penn's part or anything like that. I mean, the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it, but I don't know. Hmm. 
So there was a, a very important quote, I think, from an anonymous Republican in Politico Playbook this morning, anonymous, of course, who told Playbook, uh, you know, I am so glad nobody recorded my phone calls after January 6th because it was a this, this fleeting moment in Republican politics where a lot of people here in Washington, D.C., in the Republican Party, breathed a sigh of relief and felt like finally... This is the thing that would allow them to be liberated from Donald Trump. And so they can take some of the sort of Trump ideas and the Trump philosophy and the Trump approach to media, for instance. But they felt like finally this is what would allow them to be liberated. Um, And that didn't turn out to be the case. And this is a glimpse into that. And remember, these lawmakers were, you know, many of them were actually in immediate danger, um, you know, that day and on January 6th. And so there there was a lot of, um, you know, emotions were running high and it was raw and all of that. And this is very clearly in that context. Yeah. And I, th- I thought at the time, and I still think now that the Democrats and Speaker Pelosi made a big mistake by gaveling out of session. So they, they came back and they mm-hmm. triumphantly counted the votes and said, OK, Biden's going to be the president. I think at that right then and there, they could have drafted a, an article of impeachment just mm-hmm. in pen. Mm-hmm. Like it was very clear what you just incited, you know, an insurrection. Article one, put it on the floor <laughs> and vote right there. You, it would have passed and you might have gotten, you know, maybe, maybe get 30, 40 Republicans that join that night. You may have, um, but what's particularly, I think, this hearing this audio of Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy this denying is four days it. later still, right. Right, and another, exactly, four days later. I mean, this went on for about a week um, until, you know, it, it became a situation where sort of the political winds were clear, where Republicans like Kevin McCarthy um, ended up going. And that's what's interesting about this. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has spent years sort of trying to perfect this balancing act. Act, which is meticulous and exhausting and probably humiliating for him at different times. And there's really nobody, though, that has done it. This is purely from a political standpoint, as well as Kevin McCarthy right. has. Um, mm-hmm. He has been able to sort of toe this line of, uh, you know, bringing together these disparate wings in the Republican Party at a time where that's actually a very real concern. Um, and obviously the Liz Cheney wing is not under the McCarthy wing anymore. Right. But he, for a really long time, worked very, very hard at that and did it very effectively. And so the question is, if Trump now... Um, distances himself from Kevin McCarthy. If he starts criticizing Kevin McCarthy, Republicans are about to win back the House of Representatives mm-hmm. almost certainly. Where does that leave them? It, it's interesting to think about how Trump is going to respond to this. Because yeah. as you know, I think a lot of Democrats heard this and like, oh, McCarthy's busted. Like Trump's going to throw him overboard. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's finished now. On the other hand, this this isn't news necessarily. Like we knew at the basically in real time, Mm -hmm. how furious he was about this. He was telling people, he did the phone call with him, do you have any idea who I am? Mm -hmm. The Nation had reported actually that a conversation like this or that he was thinking about having a conversation like this. Liz Cheney was not keeping the secret. (laughs) She was the one who was on the other end of the call there. And so so Trump knew that. So Trump has always known that this is how McCarthy felt. McCarthy's basically still denying, even though the audio is out, he's still put out a statement as sort of denying it. Yeah. Which is also representative of this new era of our politics. And it's like, 
Yeah, okay, that might be me on tape, but New York Times is still fake news. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. So, so, so maybe it, he can just do that. He Say, can. I'm loyal. It's fake news. Uh, don't listen to my voice. I'm with Trump, and Trump might be. Trump might say, you know what? You've hum- humiliated yourself enough that you're back in my graces. All of that, I think, is completely yeah. correct. And this is a consequence of the media's corruption: is that when politicians are actually lying to people, they can get away with it because the trust in media is so low. And there's this idea that Kevin McCarthy can basically say, this is out of context. You know, the context is that this is something that was floated in Playbook this morning. This is this was, you know, me trying to protect Trump from an embarrassing impeachment vote. And that's the actual context that this happened in. And so you can always come right. up with something out of to undercut it. <laughs> yes. Right. You can always come up with something to do that. And that is a real consequence of the media actually earning the low trust that people have in it. You know, this, this not, doesn't come from nowhere. People don't trust the media for perfectly valid and good reasons. And the consequence is that when politicians are actually lying, people don't know which side to believe because, you know, honestly, the New York Times lies to them so often anyway that when this happens... And so what we just saw Trump with J.D. Vance, right? You have right. all of these text messages of, of J.D. Vance talking like many Republicans comfortably and openly talked in 2015 because they thought there was no way Donald Trump was going to win the primary, let alone the election. Um, and Donald Trump still endorsed him. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, this is not Trump's, this is not the end all be all for Donald Trump. It's like more, you know, where are you now? And yes, th- that goes to the question of this source, Liz Cheney. Mm. Where is Liz Cheney now? Liz Cheney is, you know, Enemy number one for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, do you think that he will end up being okay with McCarthy on this just so that he doesn't have to give a win to Liz Cheney? Yeah, Trump is a utilitarian. Um, and I'd I say I with think... the Republican conference, might, they might say the same. Like, we're not letting Liz Cheney just get the last laugh here. Well, 100%. But the, and then the other question is, if not McCarthy, who? There's really nobody who's able to do to bring those disparate factions, with the exception of the Cheney part, um, together in the way that McCarthy does. Um, mm-hmm. He's a fundraiser that they really like. And so that's the question for them. This is purely utilitarian. And so, um, I, I mean, I think it could go either way because with Donald Trump, you know, it's, it's sort of his personal <laughs> whim at any given moment. But he is a utilitarian. Um, and so in this case, I think, you know, might make sense for him to stick with McCarthy. Um, and that's partisan politics for you. But Liz Cheney waiting in the wings with the tape. Yeah. Waiting for him to deny it. She says she didn't leak the tape. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fake news is what Liz Cheney I mean, there are a lot of people on that call. Yeah. So, yeah. which also you know, takes chutzpah to deny it, knowing that you've said it on a call with lots of people. But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell you what's on our radars up next. Ryan, I think you have something on your radar. What is it? Uh, I might. So on Sunday, Senator Bernie Sanders will visit workers at a Staten Island warehouse that will vote soon on whether or not to join their comrades across the street in organizing into a union. Now, their victory earlier this month shocked the corporate world, which is also watching the organizing at Starbucks awfully closely. And while Democrats have been face planting in Congress, the Amazon victory by a ragtag crew with just $120,000 from GoFundMe has raised the question of what value there really is in electoral politics. Should people just focus on building power for a base of working people instead and abandon the duopoly? 
So a closer look at how Chris Smalls and his allies put this win together and are threatening to win again soon shows that you actually can't have one without the other, or at least the two very much work together, not as an either or. Now, one of Biden's most aggressive appointments as president was naming, was naming Jennifer Abruzzo as general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. She might be the only person that bothers the Wall Street Journal editorial board more than Lena Khan. In December, under pressure, Amazon agreed to a critical settlement with the NLRB in which they agreed to allow workers to organize inside their facilities, just not on the immediate shop floor. President Trump and the MAGA movement talks a huge game about being pro-worker. And when it comes to a lot of workers' cultural grievances, they're definitely on their side. But when it comes to their material and economic interests in the form of unionizing, they're nowhere to be seen. Trump's NLRB absolutely would not have reached this settlement with Amazon. So let's take a look at how Smalls and his team pulled this off. So friend of the show, Jordan Cheriton of Status Quo, an independent news outlet well worth supporting, interviewed Smalls at the warehouse a number of times, and he explained it like this. They try to install that fear to these workers. They try to tell them that they talk to us. Uh, they'll get fired. Uh, they spread rumors. They don't stop the rumors. The rumors spread about union dues or about talking to us, getting fired or, or retaliation. Uh, they don't stop that. But the difference is this is completely worker led. These workers that are in the inside, they get all that information real time. And that right there uh, has been a huge success for us. Everything they've been doing that's been doubling down on the workers has been backfiring because they see the difference. They see the visibility and why we're out here uh, compared to what they're telling them in the building. Now, in Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon hired, hired union busters who would walk the shop floor and talk to workers, telling them how awful unions are. In Staten Island, workers were able to fight back by exposing them. As HuffPost reported, they created flyers identifying the most prolific union busters in the warehouse, listing where they're based, typically far away, and how much money they had earned on union busting campaigns. They would put stacks of the flyers in break rooms throughout the facility so everyone would see them and know how much Amazon was spending to fly anti-union consultants in from around the country. So Connor Spence, an Amazon worker, told Dave Jamison he would follow consultants around the warehouse, handing workers copies of their Labor Department filings that showed their $300 per hour fees. That was, extremely, that was an extremely powerful tactic, he said. If it was worth it to Amazon to pay somebody that much to convince workers not to join a union, the union must be pretty powerful. Spence also told Jameson that there was one extremely effective female consultant who would chat up the male, co the male workers. Quote, all the guys in her department were in love with her, I said. So the men defended her when union organizers called her out as a union buster. But when they produced copies of her disclosure filings showing she had made nearly $20,000 for just one week of union busting, the dudes felt betrayed. Outside the warehouse, the Smalls crew set up tents where they'd feed workers lunch, help them with any issues they were having, talk shop, hang out, and even share weed. Amazon complained to the NLRB about the free pot, but their lawyer defended it as no different than passing out T-shirts, at least as far as labor law was concerned. Now, without that work inside the warehouse and without all the organizing in that tent outside the warehouse, there's simply no way they could have successfully organized the union. And without the NLRB forcing Amazon to allow that organizing to take place without calling the police, although they did call the police on Smalls once, that organizing wouldn't have been able to happen. Now, none of this would surprise, for instance, 
Eugene Debs, the legendary Gilded Age Railroad Union organizer, uh, or helped organize the massive worker uprisings from the 1870s to 1890s, which were ruthlessly crushed, not just by bosses, but by bosses working hand-in-hand -hand with National Guard troops and police forces. Only with the New Deal did the state become either neutral or supportive of union organizing. In 1936, when Ford workers engaged in a sit-down strike, the company appealed to the federal government to help them break the strike. FDR told Ford that it was their problem and to go work it out themselves. FDR didn't help, but by not crushing the workers, he gave them the chance to win, and they did. In the 1980s, that reversed, with President Reagan actively siding with companies to crush unions. So it's not that electing Democrats today magically brings about a union movement or will get your own workplace unionized. But what it did here was give the workers a fair shot. Because if you can't be in the break room and you can't pass the flyers out, if you can't follow the union busters around and hand out the flyers, they just have a completely free hand. Yeah, you're raising a really, I think, important point for the right to listen to. Um, and it's because, so uh, in fairness, a lot happened between FDR and Reagan. A lot mm -hmm. happened in the economy and a lot happened with workers and with corporations and law and all of that. And I think that's why, as I wrote in The Federalist last week, you have a lot of people caught between big labor and big business, both of which are corrupt, in corrupt institutions that are not always don't, do not always have workers' best interests in hand. And so on the right... Smalls was on Tucker's show. I wrote this long piece in The Federalist about why conservatives should support the union. Um, and it, there's some sort of like flirtation with the idea that, you know, th this is Amazon is a huge employer. There are a lot of people whose, as you say, material interests are on the line. This is not an abstract intellectual debate. They have a horrible safety record that is, is way worse than their competitors. People are, people's existence and livelihoods are on the line immediately. And so what happens is you need a way for the sort of this to trickle from you know the conservative talkers into actual action. And I had Matt Stoller on Federalist Radio Hour this week to talk about this in terms of antitrust. And he made such an interesting point. He was like, if Donald Trump was in charge of, you know, it, like you don't have Lena Khan under mm -hmm. Donald Trump. And so like the Republican Party and conservatives might want to talk about unions. But until that translates into the bureaucratic infrastructure of like the NLRB, right. you are um, you, you could actually be just talking and then undercutting the interests that you're talking right. about, even even if you think politically right. it's best. Right, because like the, right, the current MAGA movement has kind of gone ahead of itself so hard mm -hmm. that it's still, that still the NLRB types are just Reagan-era lawyers who just are in there to, to bust the union. But you're right, the, the independent nature of the, of the Smalls crew was, yes. was key to this. It was big labor, which tried to organize Bessemer. First of all, they didn't even go door to door yep. because they were worried about COVID. Mm -hmm. So they're just texting workers. Mm -hmm. Not surprising that, you know, they, that they got hammered there. And it's one thing to have access to a break room. But if you don't work there, you don't have access to the break room. So what Smalls had mm -hmm. is allies. I mean, he worked for the uh, warehouse for five years. He helped set it up. He hired a lot of the people you know, who, were, who were currently there. So he knows all these people going in and out. And so... Their organizers are actual organic workers, not organizers who managed to like trick their way into getting a job inside the warehouse to then organize it from the inside. Which, if if you do that, good for you. Good, good luck. <laughs> you can try it. It's it's just it just feels more natural. Well, and like it's, nobody's going to mistake Chris Smalls 
for like a, a, a big labor suit who's kind of sneaking his way in there. And so that, that gives them access to the break room. And it's the NLRB that says, no, you have to give them access to this break room. And if you don't, uh, we're, we're coming at you, we're suing you, we're coming at you, you broke your agreement, et cetera. And that's also why this independent format, you know, the, I've, I've talked to sort of experts uh, about this question. They say, yes, the independent, you, you lose a lot of resources um, that big labor legitimately has mm-hmm. when you go the independent route. But at the same time, the benefit, in addition to being sort of leaner and all of that, is that Chris Smalls actually represents the interest of the workers. And you don't have, as you say, a suit sort of flying in from D.C. um, who is telling workers what their interests are instead of having workers say what their interests are. You're cutting out um, an often corrupt and unhelpful middleman. And the argument that they often made in Bessemer is like, look, all all these union dues are just going to pay these huge salaries of these union executives and these union bosses who live in Washington, D.C. and have these giant buildings and these mansions. And you're like, well, every organization needs an administrator. You can make that argument and you can push back. But if you're saying that all of the union dues are going to go to ALU, Mm -hmm. this little smalls organization, which is out there already Get, making lunch for you, mm-hmm. handing out weed. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, that's mm-hmm. fine. Like that, because then you feel like you're paying dues into an organization that genuinely represents you. Exactly, exactly. And again, this is just that's why this is a big lesson, I think, particularly for the right. Nobody's asking you to support the. You know, this is not the teachers' union. This is that's not what this is. And people's material interests, many, many people's material interests, are on the line. Their safety is on the line. Um, it's time to move this from sort of the abstract conversation into actually figuring out who you're going, what you're going to do in a new Congress, and who's going to be taking up those personnel as policy positions. I think as long as Mitch McConnell is running the the Senate, it's going to be the old school. You're right. Yeah, there's no question about that. All right, looking forward to what's on your radar up next. So, Emily, what's on your radar? You know, the culture war, as usual. <laughs> Mallory McMorrow wowed James Carville himself this week, reportedly nudging some establishment Democrats towards a new playbook in that culture war. After Glenn Youngkin bested Terry McAuliffe in a blue state last fall, it's really no secret that Democrats have been flailing to land on a strategy that defends the substance of their positions, particularly on education. So to most of the country, when all the media spin is stripped away, those positions are not pretty. Many of the people I talked to when I was reporting out in Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, before that election were minorities. Some of them were recent immigrants. Matt Taibbi's reporting in Northern Virginia found something similar. Nevertheless, in a matter of hours after Glenn Youngkin won, the media, the establishment media's explanation for that upset, uh, of course, just became racism. So enter McMorrow, a state senator in uh, Michigan. McMorrow was recently invoked in a Republican's fundraising email that said, quote, these are the people we are up against, progressive social media trolls like Senator Mallory McMorrow, who are, oh, it also identified her as D. Snowflake, who are outraged they can't teach, can't groom, and can't and sexualize kindergartners or that eight-year-olds are responsible for slavery. So here's how McMorrow responded. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me. And then I realized 
because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. This delighted Don Lemon, Hillary Clinton, and the cast of Morning Joe, of course. James Carville himself said, quote, it could be or should be used as an instructional video. Over at the Washington Post, Greg Sargent wrote, quote, you'll note that McMorrow didn't sound defensive or offer mealy-mouthed, hair-splitting fact checks. She didn't capitulate to the Republican framing on these matters for a second. Instead, McMorrow laid bare her deepest convictions and explained how they led her to her positions on gay and trans rights and why basic human decency demands them. Importantly, she made this about what Republicans are doing. Now, from a purely strategic political standpoint, Sargent was totally right to laud McMorrow for putting Republicans on defense and avoiding the hair splitting. But on the substance, Democrats would be foolish to think McMorrow's approach in that video is the solution to their problem. Politico's playbook said Democratic strategist Ben LeBolt praised McMorrow, just like Carville, quote, for leaning into her personal story and framing these issues around defending basic human rights and a more inclusive society. LeBolt, according to Politico, also argued that a vast majority of Americans support abortion rights and LGBTQ rights, which is why for a long time many mainstream Republicans stopped making their own stances on those issues which sometimes differed from society's prevailing views central to their campaigns. But now red state after red state has enacted laws restricting abortion in anticipation of a major ruling on Roe v. Wade, banning transgender children from school sports and so on. Issues that LeBolt thinks Democrats can win on if they start talking more like McMorrow. Okay, those two points are not at all connected. Attacking Republicans on abortion won't change voters' minds about curricula and sex and race, nor will transports be a winning issue for Democrats between the coasts either. Here's something interesting. A Detroit Free Press article on the matter sought to define grooming for its audience. Here's what the article said. A groomer is someone who establishes a connection with a child in an effort to ultimately exploit or physically abuse that child. Here's another definition of a groomer. People who are working to desensitize the sexualization of children, creating comfort in the child for sexual issues, and working to create a rift between the child and the parents so the children's protective system is no longer available to them. Now, both definitions are pretty much exactly how I've always defined that term in my own mind. But the second one is from the Republican behind the fundraising email that attacked McMorrow. So if you consider, say, the normalization of puberty blockers, physical abuse, which I do, then the connections to some teachers seem openly to be making with these dysphoric children look a lot more similar to the consensus definition that we've shared of that term. But this is precisely what's at the heart of our current culture war, as we've discussed many, many times on the show. We no longer share a consensus on sex and gender or abuse or racism or bigotry or even violence. Our consensus definition of what grooming is is just a downstream casualty of that much, much bigger problem. So there's just no question Republicans will cross the line and overplay their hands on some of these issues. Uh, right when Ron DeSantis' so-called Don't Say Gay bill came out on the show, I immediately said that it seemed too vague. Uh, party politics are mind-numbingly stupid. That's how all of this works. They always have been. I've said this since the day that bill came out, as I just mentioned. But if Democrats think they can talk their way out of this problem, they're sorely mistaken and immoral to boot. The libs of TikTok controversy that roiled the very online bubble this week was so dumb and so exhausting. But Matt Taibbi, again, made the most salient point on his substack. Now, in her expose of the anonymous Twitter account, America's sweetheart Taylor Lorenz left out pretty much all of the context from the videos that that account posts. Real journalists 
honest journalists, even ones with opinions, would have added that context and quoted the videos extensively, knowing it makes the story both more fair and more compelling. All the layers of editorial oversight at the Post let Lorenz get away with this too. Here's what Matt wrote about one example from the Taylor Lorenz piece. Lorenz is doing the Post readers a disservice by implying that Oklahoma parents are going after a poor teacher for telling shunned LGBTQ kids he's proud of them. The line that actually triggered the controversy was, if your parents don't accept you for who you are, F them, I'm your parents now. Taibi continues, ask any parent from either party how they'd react to hearing their child's middle school teacher say that. All Lorenz said in her story was that the teacher, quote, posted a video telling LGBTQ kids shunned by their parents that Rin was proud of them and loved them. Okay, so the difference between what she wrote and what actually happened in that video is massive. And framing this as human rights or children's rights or LGBTQ rights is A, completely inaccurate, and B, doesn't help Democrats solve the problem of the substance in that video. And I'll concede readily, this is almost impossible to quantify. But curricula used in mass is premised on a racist concept of anti-racism and a sexist concept of anti-sexism. That's a very real problem. And if we can agree on those traditional definitions in the first place, racism and sexism involve discrimination based on a belief a race or sex is inherently inferior. We know it's used everywhere in the curricula because the groups that create it brag about it. When Terry McAuliffe dismissed curriculum concerns about CRT as a dog whistle, it took no time at all for documents to prove it was literally implemented in Virginia public schools. His own education of Depart- Department of Education had explicitly called on all schools to embrace it back in 2015. Now, back in March, the neoliberal Twitter account wondered why Republicans were prioritizing, quote, anti-gay, anti-LGBT bills. I wanted to somehow respond by quantifying how prolific these lesson plans are, because, again, it's hard to quantify. And immediately, when I got on a search engine, found major public school districts around the country and major organizations like the NEA, the ADL, and GLSN bragging about their promotion of radical teachings on sex and gender starting in kindergarten. So I could easily pull 50 videos from lives of TikTok of teachers boasting about unreasonable and inappropriate ideological conduct. And you wouldn't see it in the Washington Post, but that, wouldn't be, that would be only a fraction of what's actually out there. And these are just what's being put publicly online. We actually compiled a list of these back in July over at The Federalist. The point is that this is a very real problem in communities around the country. I've spoken to parents of daughters who were deeply harmed by the school's messaging on sex. It's not abstract. It's happening. The taxpayers are funding it, and it's extremely sad. So McMorrow can muster righteous indignation against overreaching Republicans all she wants. And in this case, the Republican did admit to sort of overreaching. But if Democrats don't have a defense or rebuke for the extremism that's trickled from academia into K-12 school curricula and corporate HR trainings, voters are not going to be swayed at all. And this is bigger than politics or abstract intellectual debates in the D.C. bubble. This is tearing communities and schools and families apart. It's immediately shaping the next generation of voters and workers and journalists and politicians. It's serious. And Democrats will need to address it with more than deflections and platitudes, no matter how nice they sound. Right, it kind of reminds me, this video kind of reminds me of Randy Bryce. Um, and back in, was this must have been like the summer of 2017 or 2018, mm-hmm. he was going to run against Paul Ryan, um, not far where I'm from in Wisconsin. And the sort of Beltway establishment Democrats fawned over him. He was for Medicare for All. He's fairly progressive. I saw him speak at Netroots Nation. Like, he was very, very uh, progressive for that area of Wisconsin. And the idea was that going more progressive 
is going to be more helpful. And I kind of agree with that in a certain sense, that like if you're honest about your positions and you want to actually help people, um, you're going to do better than some like establishment person who is being mealy-mouthed and all of that. But the Beltway just like salivated over him. His candidacy went nowhere. They thought this was their solution to the Trump era. I kind of think it's something similar here, that Democrats are deluding themselves into thinking they can just have nice speeches that you know deflect and they've solved the CRT problem. They've solved the, you know, the, the queer theory and you know, grade seven problem. Well, both parties have versions of this where they feel like they're in retreat and then somebody stands up for them in a vocal way and, and rallies everybody. And I think that, that case is, is, is a good example. Uh, Mallory is a McMallory. Is Mallory a, McMorrow, yeah. McMorrow is, is a good example because she also represents something that they feel uh, kind of, uh, they, don't, they don't feel as confident in how they're doing in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and particularly among a lot of white voters in Michigan and among parents. Uh, be, you know, they're, they're reeling from a lot of these losses. And so here's a Michigan woman and a parent who's giving a, a, a strong, unapologetic, you know, deep defense of, of her position and going on offense against Republicans. And, uh, you know, you saw in 2012, uh, Elizabeth Warren gave this viral, um, you built that with help speech. Yes. If you remember that one, which similarly kind of took the Republicans, you didn't build that. And it took all of this Tea Party energy and and shot it back at them. You saw the same thing with Howard Dean. Howard Dean in 2003 Mm -hmm. was the only Democrat willing to stand up to uh, George Bush, you know, and call him a fraud and a liar and a warmonger. Yes, yeah. And as a result, got a massive amount of support. And what all of these things have in, have in common is that you know Democrats were reeling at all of these different moments, and they mm. finally felt something that they could, you know, that was going to lead them out of the wilderness. Mm. And in a lot of those, in some of the, in most of those cases, they generally did follow that kind of attitude. Right. And it eventually took a while, but it, you know. The, it, it did help them find their footing and find their voice. And I, so I think you're going to see a similar thing with, with this. But Democrats are going to have to get, right, like, you, like they're going to have to get a little bit more honest about what's, what's going on specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, like I th- it probably would have been better for the Washington Post to qu- just quote the video. Just do it. It's way more then, interesting. Right. But I do think, I do think that saying that any teacher forming a connection with a student can be grooming it extends the definition to an agree far far too like far too wild I, I completely like agree. teachers should have connections with students yeah like that's 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 important I, everybody growing up remembers like the connections that they formed with their favorite teachers and mm-hmm. it, and it and it's and it becomes a touchstone for your life it's something that you remember and in tough times you know go back and think about so that's important, and for us to try to borderline criminalize that, and actually, practically in Florida, criminalize it, depending on how, uh, depending on how judges interpret you know, the conversations that, that are had between students and teachers, really disrupts the the ability to, of students to have you know meaningful uh, you know educational interactions with their with their teachers. So, uh, you know, and so I think Democrats are hoping that their own overreach in some of these issues yes. is going to be papered over by Republicans' inability to control their own worst impulses because mm-hmm. 
I, I haven't done like an exhaustive run through of the libs of TikTok account, but there does there did seem to be some some stuff that is that that goes far beyond just parodying oh, libs yeah. of TikTok and and into genuine homophobia. Oh, on libs of TikTok. Yeah. I don't know that I've seen any of that, but there is a, this is another interesting debate, um, and I've been telling people on the right they need to buckle up because this is coming to a conversation. This is inevitably going to land back at a conversation on gay marriage, um, and a lot of people on the right don't see that coming, but when you are saying there's a difference um, in, let's say, kisses in Disney movies between mm -hmm. straight parents and gay parents, that's where you're ending back up, um, and so they're going to want to buckle up to have that conversation because inevitably we're going back in that direction. So I think McMorrow is better than what Democrats Democrats have been doing on some of this, but not confronting it head on is uh, not going to be good for, for Democrats. They need an answer to this. They need to you know, cut back on the actual excesses, just as Republicans do, cut back on the actual excesses, confront the problem. Um, it's not good for their party not to do that, and it's not good for the country for them not to do that either. And, and what about the attack on Disney? Like, I feel like that might be their you know, most visible overreach. At this point, like boycotting Disney, like I was talking to a friend last night because we're unfortunately planning a trip for next year to Disney. <laughs> put, it, put it off as long as we possibly can. Um, and we're, you know, we're both joking about like the, the groomers at Disney. And like it's just absurd, like the idea that like uh, Disney is like grooming. And so like it, it feels like that's not something that like normal people are even going to engage with the right on. It's like get, what, stop with the Disney stuff. I don't know. The videos that leaked of Disney executives saying, for instance, that they had their not-so-secret gay agenda. That they I were saw that one. But that's why this is going to go back to, uh, that's inevitably going to go back to those questions. Um, you know, why is it different? And that's the culture war here is, is we're treading on, into different territory. Um, and I don't think either side is particularly prepared for it. That's right. Hey, if they shut down Disney, I don't have to go. That's right. They're not shutting down Disney. That's not happening. And they're certainly not moving it to Colorado, as Jared Paulus uh, tried to uh, tempt them. That's nice, week. actually. The, I'd rather go to Disney in Colorado than in the 105-degree Orlando. They might lose some business in the winter. That's true. <laughs> well, we'll have Tom Graham on the show to talk about deepfakes right after this. A new form of propaganda has entered the fray in the Ukraine-Russia war, and that's the use of deepfakes. CEO and co-founder of Metaphysic.ai, Tom Graham, joins us now to discuss. Tom, welcome to Rising. Thank you for having me. And, and so, Tom, the, and I guess we want to play this first, but there have been a couple of different attempts at, at deepfakes on, on both sides. There's uh, one that uh, clearly uh, anti-Ukraine anti-Ukrainian elements uh, posted of uh, Zelensky. Uh, let's play a little bit of that. So as you just saw in the video, you, you can see juxtaposed the fake video that was created as what is described as a deep fake. And then on the other side, you saw the real video. And I think still at this point, there's a pretty clear difference, even if you didn't have the real video as a point of comparison. The fake version of that video um, is is still pretty obviously fake, um, wouldn't you say? That seems to be the case that this technology is still uh, at the point where it's it's easily identifiable, at least in the the sense that it was used or weaponized. Um, it was pretty identifiable as a fake. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you can really see 
there's a difference between the face and the body. Um, and just on an emotional level, uh, when something is uncanny, when it doesn't look like it's really a human, but it's trying to look like a human, uh, it makes people kind of uncomfortable. And when you look at that fake image, you know, you get kind of an emotional reaction, which is one of discomfort and being slightly weirded out. So that's kind of the gut check, as it were, as to whether something is fake or not. Yeah, he looks like a video game. Right, yeah, yeah. he does kind of, yes, he, yes, exactly. He looks like uh, like a football player or a soccer player in, in, like, in one of the better video games. Right. Uh, and there was one of these of Putin going around as, as well, trying to put basically, you know, putting words into his, his mouth. Is there, is, there, is there any evidence that they're catching on? Or do you think that the technology is still at a place where everybody across the spectrum, even if you hate Zelensky or you hate Putin, you still are like, hmm, I don't, that looks like a FIFA uh, looks like a FIFA player. Yeah, so I believe that the technology has moved to a point where you can create something which is hyper-real, but it's extremely difficult. Mm. And it seems that in these cases, uh, it's not clear exactly who created these deep fakes, but they were um, put together in a way which was not kind of, I believe, leveraging the best versions of this technology um, or not with specific expertise, uh, potentially in a rush. So I think that uh, we may deal with more better quality deepfakes in the future, but currently it's relatively hard to access that kind of technology and the expertise is extremely limited around the world. I want to keep pulling at that thread because it seems to be the heart of the matter. Is the barrier to entry at this, uh, it's cost and expertise, I imagine. So is the ability to do something like this convincingly well um, at the hands of like very powerful people? Or is it the sort of thing that um, you, know, you can still have random people on the internet coming up with extremely high quality deepfakes just because they have the knowledge of how to do it? Or again, is this something that like really only governments or powerful anti-government interests have the capability to do at this point? And then at what point does that change? So I actually think that the people who can create hyper-real deepfakes, which are very convincing, um, that group of people is extremely small. And it doesn't necessarily correspond with high-powered governments or that kind of uh, large technology organization. The technology is extremely new and very difficult to use. And I believe that, uh, from my experience, the people who can do it particularly well just have domain expertise over a number of years and are not necessarily embedded in governments or big tech corporations. Let's take a look at that Putin one real quick. I am Vladimir Putin, the most hated man in the world. I have an important message. Please, stand with Ukraine. They need your help and your solidarity against my brutal and criminal invasion. Please, donate whatever you can to help Ukraine. До свидания и мир. And so that one's not even trying to trick people. It's like obvious parody, but... It, but it still doesn't. It still gives you that feeling that I'm just watching. I'm watching something that's not real. So, who like? Why is it so difficult? Like, what would it take for somebody to make one of those? And you'd say, okay, I know that's not real because Putin wouldn't say that. But it really does look real. Rather than I know that's not real, Putin wouldn't say that, and also, it doesn't look real. Yeah, I think the technical elements that have to come together in order to create something that looks extremely real are. Um, a lot of experience manipulating deep neural nets and these types of algorithms, which is really at the cutting edge of 
artificial intelligence research today, combined with a set of creative skills uh, around VFX and CGI, uh, like tools and skill sets that you might find in movies. So bringing together those couple of things, uh, the results that you can achieve are certainly much better than what we've seen here today. Yeah, Matt, and again, just this is sort of getting at where this could be going and how quickly this could be going there. Um, there has been a lot of, I think, hyperventilating and hyperbole about the threat of deep fakes when still at this point what we're seeing is the video clips that we just played. Um, is, there, is there a reason to have very real fear that in the very near future um, convincing deep fakes of Zelensky could make their way around the Internet um, or into, you know, the, the, or across the sort of desks of the people who would need to see it in a way that, that is actually so convincing it could have major consequences. I think this specific instance, the Zelensky deepfake in this case, is a good example of um, systems that can be put in place to deal with that kind of misinformation. So I believe that Zelensky himself uh, verified that it wasn't him in a very, very short period of time. And uh, I believe that there was quite a bit of intelligence around Russians potentially using deepfakes leading up to that. And there was quite a lot of preparation uh, around the media um, and people who would report on this kind of thing to make people aware that there could be something fake popping up in the future. And so I think it's that combination of awareness um, amongst general population, regular people, amongst the media, people who distribute this kind of information, and also uh, the technical ability to to pick up whether something is a deep fake or not, those two things coming together make a big difference in the impact that this kind of media will have in the future. Yeah, how, how easily can you pick it up? Like, does it leave a fingerprint? In other words, if, if you get it and you look at kind of the source code or whatever behind the, the video, can you see it? Or, if you, or can you just get rid of all of that as, as you move it through multiple layers of media? I think it's relatively easy to remove artifacts if you were to step down imagery and compress it or um, mm -hmm. move it from something that's higher resolution onto a mobile phone and then export that. So it is relatively difficult to detect highly sophisticated deep fakes. However, in the cases that we've seen here, I think that even to the naked eye, it's relatively obvious. And so there are definitely some things that people can look for in order to quickly ascertain that something is a fake or not. And, you know, the first one I feel is that kind of emotional gut check. Does this look a little bit strange to me? And I think that, you know, one message should be for everybody around the world that um, if you see something that looks like it's been manipulated, if it doesn't quite feel right, maybe take a beat and uh, a pause before forwarding it on into the internet or reacting in an outrageous way or, you know, uh, hyperbole, etc. And also the surprise of this segment, I'm actually not here. <laughs> this is a deep fake Ryan Graham, right. <laughs> who's also somehow just like slamming coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Digitally slamming coffee. Mm. Tom, th uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Right. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. This weekend, French voters go to the polls in an extraordinarily closely watched race between far-right uh, challenger Marine Le Pen and incumbent Emmanuel, uh, Emmanuel Macron. We're joined now by Arthur Goldhammer, who's an a, a 
analyst of French politics, a writer. Uh, he's been covering this race for the New Republic. Uh, Arthur also translated the, the classic, now classic book, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. Arthur, uh, welcome to Rising. Uh, good morning. Glad to be here. So there was a de debate on Wednesday night. Uh, did that? What's, what's your sense of how much that has changed this race? There, there was a lot of fear among Macron supporters that he, things were trending quite badly for him. Uh, how badly uh, are, uh, th are those people feeling now? Uh, well, uh, I think they're feeling a little better now. You're quite right that the momentum seemed to be in Le Pen's favor uh, after the first round of the election. Uh, she'd come according to uh, some polls, within two or three points of Macron. So it was really getting into the uh, uh, red zone territory. Uh, unlike in 2017, however, uh, the debate uh, uh, did not uh, provide a knockout opportunity for Macron. Uh, Le Pen uh, held her own, although almost all commentators agree that she lost on points. Macron was a very good debater and a master of uh, all the details of policy, uh, as one would expect from uh, a uh, top-level graduate of France's most elite uh, training institutions for the uh, governmental uh, leadership uh, positions. Uh, he did uh, quite well in the debate. Uh, he was uh, a little more aggressive than expected. Uh, usually the front-runner is... Uh, expected to lay back a bit, uh, and the uh, challenger attacks. Marine Le Pen, who had been on attack on the campaign trail, actually laid back, and Macron, uh, contrary to expectations, came out punching. And uh, uh, as I said, most observers and uh, an instant poll conducted right after the debate uh, showed that he did very well. And uh, currently, polls uh, have him leading by uh, as much as 10 points. Something interesting about this matchup and this runoff um, is sort of the absence of the left. You have the center right against the right, uh, or as Ryan said, the far right. So tell us about that dynamic um, and how that could affect, you know, there was obviously the third sort of left candidate that attracted a lot of votes, a good chunk of votes uh, before the runoff. How does that affect the dynamic when people go to the polls um, on the, over the weekend? Uh, well, what Macron did in 2017, aided by, uh, it must be said, uh, uh, a very fortunate alignment of the stars, this wasn't all his doing, uh, but he came out of nowhere and essentially absorbed uh, the entire center of the French political spectrum, both the center-right and the center-left. Uh, he had been working for Francois Hollande, a, a president of the center-left, who became very unpopular by the end of his term. And Macron uh, essentially occupied that space. When he won the election, he was immediately joined by a number of people who had been in uh, Hollande's government, uh, but also by people who had supported uh, Alain Juppé, the most centrist of the right-wing uh, uh, opposition uh, back uh, in 2017. Uh, so that left no air uh, in French politics except on the extremes. Uh, Marine Le Pen on the far right, where she was joined by a, a challenger, Eric Zemmour, who uh, also came out of nowhere and at first seemed like he might be a real threat to Le Pen. He took away half of her vote. Uh, but uh, the war in Ukraine intervened. Uh, uh, Zemmour was an outspoken supporter of uh, Putin. 
uh, as was Le Pen before the invasion, but she changed her tune after the invasion, uh, which she condemned. Zemmour refused to condemn the invasion and refused to welcome Ukrainian refugees into France. Uh, so uh, he began to fade at that point, and she again became uh, the dominant figure on the far right. On the far left, the other vacuum uh, left by uh, uh, Macron's utter dominance of the center, Jean-Luc Mélenchon did better than expected in the first round. He got uh, 22%. This was his third try for the presidency, and that was his high watermark. Uh, so the contest uh, going into the final round is to see who can uh, draw more of Mélenchon's supporters. And I think the answer is that Macron will, although many of Mélenchon's voters will abstain or cast blank votes in the uh, second round. And there, there was some criticism of some of the other left parties that, you know, that continued running despite the fact that it's, it appeared like Mélenchon had a shot at making it into the final two, and he ended up losing by just, just a hair, right? So has there been, how has, how has that reverberated in, in France? Uh, well, uh, it's true that in 2017, Mélenchon had forged an alliance with the Communist Party. Uh, he was unable to do that, or unwilling to do that, I think would be more accurate to say, uh, this year. Uh, and the communists uh, ran their own candidate who got two and a half percent of the vote. If uh, they had forged an alliance and assuming that two and a half percent went to Mélenchon, he actually would have beat Marine Le Pen uh, and made it to the second round. Uh, what he's doing now is uh, a unique strategy. He's never been tried before. He's calling on his voters to, uh, 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 first of all, he told them not to vote for uh, Le Pen. He did not say vote for Macron, but implicit in his call not to vote for Le Pen is uh, a vote for Macron. But he's now asking his voters to uh, turn out massively in the legislative elections, which will be held in June, and elect him prime minister. Now, actually, they can't do that because the president appoints the prime minister, who must then form a government uh, and obtain a vote of confidence from the legislature. Uh, but he's hoping that somehow he'll force Macron's hand. I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, Macron, uh, Mélenchon does not really have the support of 22% of the electorate. He got what uh, the French like to call a useful vote. That is, voters on the left who really did not favor his policies nevertheless voted for him uh, because he was the only left alternative. Uh, in the legislative elections, the other parties, which lost badly at the national level, still retain a base at the local level and will elect uh, quite a number of deputies. So I don't think he'll have a majority uh, sufficient to force Macron's hand. And if Le Pen does pull off some upset here, and given the way that she has condemned the Russian invasion, how should people understand that? a Le Pen win as it relates to Putin. Is it still a giant win for, for Putin and, the, and, and his kind of movement in Europe? Uh, absolutely. It would be a, a win of major magnitude for Putin. Uh, despite uh, her change of tune on the invasion itself, she still calls for France to withdraw from NATO. Uh, she's always been hostile to the EU. So she would split the two main uh, alliances that are representing uh, Europe in, in the support of Ukraine. Uh, as Macron uh, aggressively pointed out in the debate, uh, she has borrowed money from Russian banks 
because French banks would not lend to her. Uh, and Macron said, if you uh, are uh, uh, in a position where you must negotiate with Putin, you'll be talking to your banker. You won't be talking as a head of state. You'll be talking as someone who owes uh, Russian banks 15 million euros. So uh, it, it would be uh, a, a real blow to the alliance against uh, Russia in the war in Ukraine. Right. Well, Arthur, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And we'll have more Rising right after this with Stephen Donziger. After 193 days of confinement, attorney Stephen Donziger will be released on Sunday. He's announced a block party for anybody in New York who wants to celebrate. A freedom block party. Freedom block party. Excellent. Uh, Stephen Stephen Donziger himself joins us now. Stephen, welcome to Rising. Thank you for having me. And so Stephen, as a lot of people know, is a, uh, was an attorney who took on Chevron, won a, what, $9 billion uh, judgment for damage that they had uh, caused while, you know, while, while drilling. Uh, and uh, as a result, Chevron spent the next several years, next many years, um, targeting you personally to the point of uh, you know, actually getting you thrown into prison. Uh, so, uh, where is where is the case now? And is is there once you're released on Sunday? What's the next? I, I have a sense that Chevron isn't finished. What's the next thing that you think they're going to try to throw at you? Well, just to be clear about what went down, um, you know, I, I get released Monday. It's nine nine hundred ninety three days um, for a misdemeanor. Uh, Did I say one hundred ninety three days? I don't know. Yeah, said, sorry, I said I 193. Right. <laughs> you know? So I've been basically sitting in my house for the most part, also for six weeks in a federal prison with an ankle bracelet um, for almost three years uh, because of my successful human rights work um, on behalf of indigenous peoples in the Amazon of Ecuador, who I and other lawyers helped win a $9.5 billion pollution judgment after Chevron. Um, was found to have deliberately dumped billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste into rivers and streams that they relied on for drinking water. Um, cancer rates in this area of Ecuador are really high. Many people are suffering. Many have died. Um, rather than pay the judgment, by the way, the trial was held in Ecuador because Chevron insisted it be held there. Chevron had accepted jurisdiction in Ecuador. Once the evidence mounted against it, it turned its sights on attacking Ecuador, its government, its courts. And ultimately, me as the lead lawyer on the case from the United States, I mean, we had an international team, but they found a judge here in New York um, and they filed a fraud lawsuit against me based on, in my opinion, bogus evidence. Um, and they sued me for $60 billion initially. That's the largest potential liability in U.S. history. It was an intimidation play. I'll point out that the judgment in Ecuador has been affirmed by six different appellate courts, including the Supreme Courts of both Ecuador and Canada for enforcement purposes. The people are still suffering. Chevron refuses to pay. Um, Their lead lawyer said they're gonna fight this till hell freezes over and then fight it out on the ice. And it's a horrendous example, in my opinion, of corporate malfeasance, corporate irresponsibility, um, and you know, actually having me locked up as retaliation for our successful work is just a bridge beyond anything I've ever seen before in this country. 
Yeah, and Stephen, you've been kind enough to come on the show many times, and, and now that you're actually facing uh, this, the freedom, the Freedom Block Party, all of that good stuff, and you're looking back and saying Chevron still wants to fight this to the bitter end, there's this broader 30,000-foot view question of why this case meant so much to Chevron, why it meant so much, so, so much money to Chevron, money and resources. Um, why is it you know, that this was the stakes, as Chevron judged them, were so high that they continue to want to fight this to the bitter end? That's a great question. And I think it's not just Chevron, but the whole fossil fuel industry, the, you know, the big oil companies, big mining companies, they don't want to live in a world where indigenous peoples in a rainforest are able to ally with lawyers in the North um, to win big court cases at this level. I mean, it, it really, in my opinion, threatens their business model. I mean, it really doesn't because the fact is Chevron grosses $250 billion a year. Their stock price is at an all-time high. If they paid this judgment, it wouldn't materially affect the stock price of the company. But what they're really worried about is the model. You know, the model of uh, vulnerable communities in the forest or around the world, even in the United States, figuring out how to actually win judgments in court that force these oil companies to pay what they really owe for the harm they caused. You know, these companies fundamentally are grifting off of society. You know, Chevron went down to Ecuador through operating through Texaco, which they bought in 2001, deliberately dumped 16 billion gallons of toxic waste as a way to keep their production costs down. And, you know, left the Ecuadorian government, the Ecuadorian taxpayers with the bill. That's grifting. So when the people reacted and actually figured out how to file a lawsuit and win a case in the venue of Chevron's choosing, the company experienced that as some sort of a front to their value system, some sort of a front to their expectation, and starts accusing the indigenous peoples of not playing fair and accusing me of not playing fair. And this whole thing with locking me up, I just want to point out, um, you know, first of all, it's clear that what I do as a human rights lawyer threatens Chevron at its core, okay? Why would you take this extreme measure? They were able to get a U.S. federal judge, who I've accused of being dishonest, Lewis Kaplan, dishonest because he denied me a jury and he let Chevron pay a witness $2 million to come into court to claim I committed fraud in Ecuador, which was false and it's been rejected by multiple appellate courts and, as I said, in Canada. Um, they convinced this judge to charge me criminally for appealing a civil discovery order that he issued requiring me to turn my computer and cell phone over to Chevron and all this confidential attorney client protected information. So I couldn't do that ethically. So rather than turn it over, I appealed his order to a higher court. And while it was on appeal, he charged me with a crime for disobeying an order that I had appealed. I mean, the whole thing was preposterous. And he took the case to the US attorney who refused to prosecute me Judge Kaplan then appointed a private corporate law firm with Chevron as a client, the law firm's name is Seward and Kissel, to prosecute me in the name of the government, the same government that had rejected the case. And then he had me locked up pre-trial, even though it was only a misdemeanor. And I'll point out, I'm the only lawyer in U.S. history who's ever spent a day detained um, pre-trial for a misdemeanor. It ended up being two years and two months prior to my trial because of delays caused by COVID. I was in my apartment the entire time when the maximum sentence, if I were to be convicted, was six months in prison. I'd served four times that at home by the time I got to trial. So the whole thing is highly irregular. And I may say there's two lessons. One is the fossil fuel industry is very threatened 
by serious human rights work done by competent legal teams, as in this case, Chevron. And number two, the power of this company to capture control of at least a pocket of our federal judiciary to manipulate you know, the system such that I'm deprived of my liberty as a lawyer in America, as a human rights lawyer, is very frightening. And I'll say that I think it's the playbook, not just for Chevron, Exxon, but this whole industry when activists become, you know, become too threatening to their business model. And what's the status of the of the case for the indigenous community now? So the case, the judgment is affirmed by the Supreme Court of Ecuador. It's a valid judgment. And the indigenous communities are working with other lawyers, not me, to figure out how to enforce it against Chevron's assets and jurisdictions outside the United States. Chevron has assets and dozens and dozens of countries. Um, and the company is very vulnerable. I think they don't understand that like there are other people working on it. It's not the Stephen Donziger case. It's the case of the people of Ecuador. They think by locking me up somehow that the judgment won't be enforced. I think they're mistaken about that. But the status of the case is there's a judgment. Chevron refuses to pay. People are suffering. The communities who are suffering are working with lawyers to figure out how to go to other countries to go see Chevron's assets to force the company to pay the judgment. What's the what's the first thing you're going to do when you're free on Monday? <laughs> I've been thinking about that a long time. I think I'm going to get a really good lunch with my family, um, walk around, and then wait for our freedom party at 6 p.m. By the way, anyone who's in the New York area, please come by. It's a block party. We've got a permit to close off the street. There's going to be some great people there musicians and, and, you know, Susan Sarandon's coming, Chris Smalls who organized the union over at Amazon that just won the union vote, um, law school classmates and just supporters. It's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, look, I have a lot of work to do to sort of get my life back, but we definitely want to take this moment after all this time locked up to celebrate. And by the way, I got through this because of the support of thousands and thousands of people around the world. So it's about really expressing appreciation and celebrating what really a lot of people um, were involved in to help us and the people of Ecuador get through this. We'll have a great time on Monday, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. And we'll have more rising right after this. David Sirota joins us to, to, to talk about the Democrats' joker moment. Stick around. Investigative journalist David Sirota, founder of The Daily Poster, which is now The Lever at levernews.com, is joining us now to discuss his latest piece uh, on Joker America. Uh, so, David, get, tell, us, tell us the thesis of this essay, which people can find at levernews.com, and it's, it's, the entire thing is well worth a read, but uh, give, give us the outlines of it. Look, I think that we've seen a lot of betrayal after betrayal after betrayal from Joe Biden. Uh, the difference between campaign promises and what he's actually done, what the Democratic Congress has done, what he's done and not done when it comes to executive orders. And what we now see in polls is an entire generation of voters seems to be deciding that the Democratic Party uh, cannot and will not create change. And I think a deeper uh, existential faith in democracy itself, politics, government and democracy, that that there is an entire younger generation that is 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 essentially pulling out of politics uh, and and losing complete faith in government. And look, 
the point of the essay is to say that the Republicans benefit, and I think they feed off of uh, politically, uh, essentially saying the system can't work, it won't work, it needs to be burnt to the ground. Embedded in all of Democratic Party rhetoric is this idea that government and politics can materially improve people's lives. When you have Biden then uh, at the top of a party that continues to betray its promises, very clear and explicit promises, and we can go through some of them, when it does that over and over and over again, it's kind of joining the Jokerification of America. And, and the whole reference to the Joker is that character in the Batman movies who basically uh, decides that the system is so rigged, uh, the world is, is, is so lost, that there's nothing to do but clown laugh at the entire situation. And the danger for the Democrats, I mean, it's a good political formula for the Republicans because they're telling everybody all the time the system can't work, let's burn it to the ground. But when the Democrats start engaging in that kind of politics, that, in my view, is why we are where we are seven months before the midterms and the polls look so terrible for them. I think that's exactly right. And you call it the Joker pill. A lot of people on the right refer to it as the black pill. I actually like the Joker pill better because it conjures <laughs> these really vivid images from the Todd Phillips movie that in the piece you reference how the country is still sort of reeling from the meltdown. By the way, your podcast meltdown is fantastic and a great inside look at this. People should check it out. Thank you. Um, it, it really, you're saying that we're still sort of reeling from the meltdown of the early Obama years. And the scenes in the Todd Phillips movie I mean, I don't know. I live in a major city. Sometimes when I look around, it, it actually feels like Phillips's version of Gotham. Um, if you could sort of walk us through what the connective tissue is there and, and how sort of in 2022, after the pandemic, when people feel like the recession is, is literally history, um, how there's still the, the political establishment still hasn't really responded to the trauma that it induced. Right. And I think it's good to start in the early Obama years where you had a president who got elected with a big mandate to deal with a financial crisis, who really spent most of his political capital uh, rescuing the big banks, uh, not dealing with the foreclosure crisis and and frankly, bailing out the health insurance industry separately and not really solving the health care crisis. In my view, that started to tear apart the social contract, uh, the last remnants of the social contract where the public was led to believe if we vote for things, we can get good things. We did. They, the public felt like it did that and it didn't get the things it was promised. And I think that disillusionment ultimately led to Donald Trump. That's why you saw 200 plus counties uh, flip from Obama to Trump. That disillusionment was part of it. And I think now when you have Biden in office, prom campaigning on a promise for a public health insurance option, campaigning on a promise to, to immediately cancel a major chunk of student debt, uh, campaigning on a promise to take the climate crisis seriously, and then he doesn't do all those things. And in many cases makes things worse. For instance, on climate, we're drilling more now on federal land than Trump ever did. Uh, that sends another message to the public that even though you voted for change, nothing will fundamentally change. And when you look at the numbers among young people, right, the polling data, uh, how much of an erosion the Democratic Party has faced among young people. I mean, we're talking about huge, huge numbers of young people saying they are not going to support Joe Biden. And you've got some pundits out there saying, I don't understand. Why is this happening? It's so, so confusing. There's nothing. It shouldn't be confusing. The cost of living in this country is going up. The macro economy may be booming, but the structural stresses facing people every day, healthcare, housing, energy, uh, the cost of basic necessities continues to make American life very difficult for people. And people feel like they just voted for change. What do you expect them? How do you expect them to react? 
they're not going to react in a way where they say, oh, the president's doing a great job. I mean, I, I think it's, it's incredibly telling that the macro economy is doing so well and the public's views of the economy are, are, are down. And now look, some of that is that people don't understand. There's, there's sort of a Fox News effect here where it's like, oh, the economy isn't doing well or jobs aren't growing. And that's actually just not true. But I think a much larger part of this is that the macro economy is now divorced from people's lived economic experience. Yeah in America. Yeah, the macro economy to me feels in some ways like a game of musical chairs that have been going on for several years and young people feel like the music has stopped, everybody got a chair, mm -hmm. and now they're just standing there. It feels like a game. Yeah, and there's no sense that the music's going to play again anytime soon. And a chair, a chair would be a comfortable retirement and a, right. and a home. A home. A home that you can... Marriage, own. home... Yeah. And student and getting rid of your student debt, getting out of the burdens of, of debt. And so here you are, there's no music, there's no chair. And it, it plays into this. And I want to get your, your reaction to this. There's, there's been this, this idea percolating in the kind of academic circles that study populism that says that the way that people are interacting with politicians now is much more personal, like whether it's Trump or whether it's some AOC. other. AOC. AOC even, or some in Bernie in, in interesting ways. In, in a, which reflects what a lack of trust in representative institutions. It's not just institutions that are losing trust and respect of people, but even representative ones. Like the, this idea that you're going to vote for somebody and they're going to go represent you in this institution, that institution is going to deliver for you, is no longer taken seriously. And instead, people just want a direct connection with a politician. And they feel like they right. get that from a, from a Trump, whether or not he's de yeah. delivering... Or, or not. And so when the institution really isn't delivering, uh, that can exacerbate that. Are, are, you, are you sensing that, that shift among young people that they, they want to feel either a connection or some material benefit, and Democrats in general aren't giving either? A hundred percent. I think that point about the sort of the dear leader, if you will, mm -hmm. in our followership culture. I mean, think about Twitter as an example. We follow people. We follow individuals. It's kind of exacerbated that tendency to, to think of the, the dear leader, the great savior, uh, and that people are, I think, uh, politically organizing around that because they've lost faith in, in institutions that are supposed to be bigger than any individual. Uh, and, and I think that's a, that's a huge problem. Although I think it's also, it also explains the Trump effect. I mean, Trump keeps, you know, he said explicitly, uh, I'm the only one who can fix it or whatever his exact line was. It was, it was something to that effect. I, I alone can fix it. And I think that has a, a short term appeal to people when they've lost faith in institutions. And as it relates to the democratic party, when they are the party in power and they don't singularly focus on delivering for people and all they focus on is trying to uh, rhetorically say they're gonna they're gonna help people but then appease the donors that are crushing those same people they end up sounding incoherent they end up not delivering and in the short term it, their rhetoric may may sort of mitigate that oh we're gonna we're gonna soon fix things but in the end reality wins out and if you don't fix those problems at the end of the day you're gonna see the polls that we're seeing right now my favorite recent example was here in Muriel Bowser's DC, which she had a huge ribbon cutting ceremony at the Southeast Starbucks recently, uh, just a, an area that is riven with, with poverty um, and, and violence. And Muriel Bowser's coming in to have this big ribbon cutting ceremony for the Starbucks. Um, but a good example of how a Democrat um, in a city like Washington, D.C., I'm sure you can make uh, comparisons straight to Gotham, Eric Adams. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric 
And it's as though the rhetoric is a substantive deflection from their substance um, and its policy in and of itself, it seems. You cannot uh, evade reality for that long. And here's the thing. I think that Joe Biden has settled on this as a strategy. It's been repeated so many times where he comes out and he's for unions, but he's not actually following his uh, labor task force's recommendations to actually help unions. Um, He's for lowering the price of prescription drugs. He hasn't issued an executive order using marching rights to lower the price of prescription drugs. I don't think the public is necessarily following the granular details of this, but I think that clearly in the polls, the voters get a sense generally that they're being sold a false bill of goods that isn't being uh, deliberately isn't being delivered by the politicians who are selling them. And again, the, the bottom line problem with that is if you keep doing that over and over again, you're transmitting the idea that government and politics Uh, don't matter at all, can't do anything, and should be burnt to the ground. One last thing I want to say, there is one silver lining here. I do think that some of this explains uh, the increased activism in the labor movement. That, that as people mm-hmm. have, have been become disillusioned with the idea of politics changing things, I think a lot of the Bernie movement, I think a lot of the energy of politics has gone into directly organizing workplaces. And I, and I think that is a fantastic silver lining here of a generally bad situation. I, I was going to exactly say, right. I think that also is repeated in communities, like the sort of like people are realizing the bowling alone thing. Maybe there's a, a an avenue in their own community to sort of uh, make change and yeah. make their their immediate surroundings a better place. And other energies going into culture war stuff. <laughs> Mostly uh, Ryan's energy. All my energy, the culture <laughs> war stuff. <laughs> David, uh, great, great piece. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to both of you. And the system's answer for this was CNN Plus. Woo! Up next, we're going to see how that worked out. Stick around. News broke yesterday on Thursday that CNN Plus will be shuttering about a month into its existence. It'll be done on April 30th. It launched actually as a really nice birthday present to me on March 29th, and it's gone after millions of dollars, about $100, millions, $100 million already sunk into it and a planned $4 billion investment over the course of four years. It's all gone. Uh, Ryan, there's a lot of different explanations for this, and there's a lot of different ways to look at this. The business, the Warner Brothers Discovery merger had a huge role, um, and of course the departure of Jeff Zucker. What's your take? Well, I think rather than asking the question of like why it failed, I think a better question would be, what was the rationale for why it would have succeeded? (laughs) And and I'm kind of joking, but not really. So why? So, I mean, let's try to concoct some explanations for where there would be an audience. Apparently, McKinsey <laughs> uh, told them that they would have 2 million subscribers you know, fairly, fairly quickly. That was their goal in, in four years, was to have break even and have 2 million subscribers. So if their, if their primetime shows don't have 2 million viewers, <laughs> like their you know, best stuff yep. that they're spending millions to produce with their greatest talent, mm-hmm. If they don't get two million, then why? Like that's the, that's the thing. Why would somebody? Who who are these two million people? Yeah, who are gonna who are gonna pay extra to do CNN Plus? Uh, it, I I I like I don't I don't see like I now if they were gonna do something different, 
Like if they were going to let's say let's say they were like going to do a rising type of thing mm-hmm. where you're going to have like some populists, you're going to have some like left wing insurgents, you're going to have some some MAGA people. <laughs> like you're you're going to like you know, reinvent how you do news. That could that could be interesting. It'd be tough with the brand. Yep. Um, but at least it would be something different. But you're just doing what CNN's doing. Yeah. And CNN with its best talent um, is you know fading. Yeah. So with lesser talent and less money and without any ability to, I mean, I guess you can advertise. They were advertising on Breaking Points, apparently. Did you see this? <laughs> no, but that's hilarious. Uh, on the Breaking Points podcast, they were, dyna- like, it's, you know, it's a dynamic advertising. They right. don't pick the ads. And Chris Wallace's show was being advertised. <laughs> so, like, I, do, I just don't understand what their idea was for how they were going to pull this off. Yeah, that's exactly what I wrote about today, actually, is it, it's, it's a really interesting question because Chris Licht, who is now the new uh, head of CNN, comes from Stephen Colbert's show. And the example I actually always use about new media is why is Stephen Colbert, who's the most partisan and least funny guy in late night, why is he generally the top rated host in late night? And it's because of niches. He doesn't need to put up Johnny Carson's numbers, so he doesn't need to appeal to that many Americans. His writers ask, what is going to make resistance boomers laugh tonight, not what is going to make America laugh tonight. And it's a very different model. So in that sort of niche world, Licht comes in, he looks at what CNN Plus is doing, which is treating this platform like CNN has the brand it used to mass media, the place people trust for serious breaking news, that's the kind of money and overhead they're pouring into it and says, holy smokes, we need to pull the plug. Um, and that's what reporting from like Sarah Fisher, Fisher at Axios basically says is like they were completely skeptical that the streaming business model for the brand that CNN has right now was going to make it successful. Um, and they're really clearly trying. Licked actually this week said he was quitting Twitter. He said, it skews your impression of the world. Um, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, mm-hmm. but um, it could be Litched. Who knows? Uh, but he, he quit Twitter. He says he wants to go in a more serious news Twitter direction. Twitter would have told him not to do this. If he was, <laughs> like, Listen to Twitter. Like, you could have. It's, there's so much wisdom in Twitter. Nobody on Twitter was saying this was going to be a good idea. So CNN is banking that they can resurrect their brand and they can still make more money by going back to this model where they're actually seen as the serious place mm. for real straight neutral news, which, by the way, is freaking impossible. Um, and they're not going to be able to do it. But that's what they're banking on. And that's why CNN Plus made no sense for kind of the new direction that they want to go in. Yeah, I mean, I really do think that if you're going to reach a broader audience, you have to do something like this, yeah. where, you, where you're presenting different perspectives. Because right. a, a lot of people that, that I meet w- will watch both Fox and CNN, mm-hmm. or MSNBC and Fox, because they don't necessarily trust either one. They want to get both sides. And then they can decide for themselves, rather than having one person tell them that their perspective is objective. Like CNN can tell you all they want that we're going to be objective. Fox News can tell you they're going to be fair and balanced. Nobody, nobody really believes that. But if you have two or three different viewpoints that you're hearing at the same time, then you're like, okay, that's fine. Like, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I agree, I agree with that. And then, and then you can check the ideas against each other. There was no real evidence that CNN was... Uh, was planning on doing anything like that. Right. Or you go in the other direction where you're so full resistance, right. you're or, MSNBC, or you go, which did really go, well in the Trump years. One America, like, 
Well, so Fox Go. Nation has been successful for Fox, and like that's how that's what the audience is for a niche mm -hmm. streamer like CNN Plus. Right, you but go they all in on it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you go all in on the niche. You go full Colbert, underlicked, and uh, that's how you can make it. But they were they were pouring so much, hundred million dollars into something that lasted a month, and of course they think they can repurpose some of the content, whatever. But a hundred million dollars, a four billion or a billion over four years incredible amount of money to pour into something that was never going to appeal beyond that tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the public that is watching Don Lemon already. Yeah, well, I mean, good, good on them for having the gall to make the decision. I mean, the, yes. the call, like just to go ahead and be like, you know what, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. We need to pull it and we need to invest our money mm -hmm. somewhere else. I was joking that they, they should have just shut it down and seen what happened. <laughs> and see, see if anybody noticed. If anybody noticed. <laughs> I saw that, yeah. We, did, like, we used to, at, at HuffPost, we had HuffPost Live for a while, and mm -hmm. for a while they were doing 12 hours of programming, which was just completely insane. Mm -hmm. uh, this is pre the time where there was an audience for this. They, they cut it from 12 hours down to eight. Mm. We didn't hear one single complaint. <laughs> <laughs> like, four hours. Nobody being like, hey, what happened to that four hours of content? It's just... It disappeared, and it's just the wind just took it. Did anyone thank you? Because <laughs> well, no, nobody knew. Right? <laughs> nobody knew to thank us. Oh, man, 12 hours to eight. Eight still seems like a lot, but... Yeah. Well, this is your last weekend in other, in other news to watch CNN Plus. Right. Uh, so after we wrap today, after you've gotten your fill of Rising Fridays... Did which... they do a one-month free? <laughs> I don't know if they, they already can, had slashed it to 50% so, yeah, off. Maybe I'll watch it this weekend. Yeah, maybe that's what Ryan's going to watch that. He's going to look into the deep fakes. Um, well, I'm, from here, I'm going to the train station, going to New York to watch fish this weekend. We are literally so, wrapping yeah. early so that Ryan can get his ass to but, a fish concert. But on the, but on the train, <laughs> I'm going to put some CNN Plus. Get in, the, get in the mood for the show. Those are the people yeah. who watch CNN Plus, the people on the Acela going from New York. We're taking the regional. Oh, you're taking the regional. Okay. Well, so you have more time. That's right. That's right. Um, your last weekend, make sure you do that after you're done with Rising Fridays, which we considered calling Friday. What, what were Fries, we? Friday. 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 But we went with this instead. Uh, still no wine in the mugs, even though it may seem like it. But please make sure to tune in next week for more Rising Friday content, more rising content all week. We're so excited to be here with you on Fridays. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So that's fun too. So go subscribe to that. And if you're at the garden tonight, come by and say hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll see you, see you next week.